This is a Cato Special Podcast. I'm Caleb Brown. The seizure of documents from the office of the president's personal attorney raises serious questions about attorney-client privilege and what it takes to invade upon that important relationship. Clark Neely, vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute, argues that violating that privilege is sometimes made easier by the fact that so much of ordinary daily activity is today categorized as criminal. What does it take for uh, the government to essentially invade the relationship between an individual and uh, his or her attorney? Uh, Very little, actually, it turns out. Because why? Because in order to do that, they have to allege that uh, the crime fraud exception to the attorney-client privilege applies. And that essentially says that if you have uh, worked with a lawyer, uh, whether the lawyer knows it or not, but if you've worked with a lawyer in some fashion uh, to uh, uh, facilitate criminal activity, Uh, or commit a fraud, then the attorney-client privilege does not apply. And here's why I say it's it's a very low standard. You might think it's a very high and significant standard. It's not. Why? Because we criminalize utterly trivial conduct in this country. Virtually everybody has committed some crime or another. And if you're a a major business person like Trump has been for most of his life, um, you deal with lawyers a lot. And so um, the, the idea that in some way or fashion you could be described as having you know, engaged your lawyer for the purpose of helping you engage in criminal activity um, probably applies to a very substantial number of people who are doing business today. And so you've taken this very, very significant privilege, the attorney-client privilege, that's even more significant, of course, when it's the privilege between the president and his own lawyer. And effectively, that that privilege can be breached on the basis of the most trivial possible conduct because we criminalize trivial conduct in this country. We don't know what was in the warrant, by the way. We don't know whether the conduct at issue was serious or not serious, but a lot of crimes in this country are utterly unserious, and so it could be that that this privilege was breached on the basis of completely trivial conduct. All right, and but of course, that, as you say, that doesn't diminish the seriousness of uh, Mr. Mueller and his team uh, breaching this uh, privilege for the purpose of gathering evidence from the president's attorney. Yes, and just to be clear, this was a referral from Mueller's team to the Southern District of New York. So actually, the the raid on uh, on uh, Michael Cohen's office was not conducted by agents associated with Mueller's uh, team, but rather by um, uh, agents associated with the Southern District of New York uh, on the basis of a referral from. Mueller. Now, whether that matters significantly, we don't really know at this point. Uh, the the important thing is that uh, federal law enforcement officials are going to have access to a an extraordinary trove of materials belonging to the president's lawyers, and they are going to comb through those materials looking for any evidence of criminal activity. That is a very very big deal. So I read from uh, Paul Rosenzweig uh, at the Atlantic today. He says this. Mueller's team will not charge the president uh, largely because of uh, sort of policy within the Department of Justice and their decisions about what certain laws mean and that that is simply not going to happen. He's very confident in that. I think that's probably right. Uh, There's this open question, you know, whether a sitting president can be indicted. But I think that's frankly beside the point because I think it's extraordinarily unlikely. What's much more likely is that uh, Mueller's team could be, in effect, setting the president up for an impeachment, essentially you know, doing an investigation that has the goal of uncovering criminal activity 
on the part of the president. Um, once that information is made public or, or even just conveyed to members of Congress, even if it's not made public, the, um, that, that material, depending on what they find, could be the basis for a future impeachment. What constrains either Robert Mueller or the U.S. attorney from the Southern District of New York to, you know, discover all sorts of other crimes? Uh, practically speaking, very little. There are a number of paper constraints uh, in terms of the, you know, what material can be reviewed, how it's to be reviewed. Uh, when you're looking at attorney-client material like this, there's a, a procedure by which they create what's called a taint team. That's a group of, of, of agents and prosecutors who are not associated with the, the main investigation who will look through the material to see what's relevant to the investigation and what's not. And then they're not supposed to share anything that isn't relevant. Uh, and so there are a, a number of kind of paper constraints. I think those are largely meaningless for the following reason. Uh, the Department of Justice is an institution in which they have a culture of zero accountability. And we know this because of past incidents. I think the most uh, the best comparison is the prosecution of uh, Senator Ted Stevens in 2008, uh, which led to his conviction on corruption charges. Uh, that conviction was later dismissed when it was determined uh, that the prosecution team had engaged in extraordinary acts of deliberate misconduct. Uh, to the point where a special investigator actually came within a whisker of recommending that a couple of the, the DOJ prosecutors themselves be prosecuted. And it was the greatest ethical uh, uh, you know, uh, stain in the history of the Department of Justice. The worst punishment that any of those prosecutors received was a transfer to another office. And I think that every prosecutor in the Department of Justice must have gotten the message from that, which is that uh, essentially, you, you can get away with just about anything and there will be no consequences. And I have no reason to believe that, that the department's institutional culture has changed. Now, I don't know the individuals working on this case. Perhaps they are extremely ethical and they will do everything that the paper uh, constraints require. But if they are not, if they are not those kind of people and if they're kind of more the win-at-all-costs type of people, they can be assured that there will be no consequences no matter uh, what they do. Um, again, if the, if the Senator Ted Stevens uh, case is any guide. Um, and so I think there are very few practical constraints on what may be done uh, with the information that they discover and where it could lead. Clark Neely is Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. 